Okay, this one is to St. Monica on her feast day. The Life of St. Monica, available at st-patricks.org, stpatricks.org. Life of St. Monica by Francis Alice Forbes, a.k.a. F.A. Forbes. Project Gutenberg's Life of St. Monica by F.A. Francis Alice Forbes. This ebook is for the use of anyone anywhere at no cost and with no with, with almost no restrictions whatsoever. <laughs> Love it. Thank you, St. Patrick. You may copy it, give it away, or reuse it under the terms of the Project Gutenberg license included with this ebook or online at www dot gutenberg dot net release date april twenty fourth two thousand eleven ebook number three five nine four one start of this project gutenberg ebook life of saint monica here produced by david mcclamrock third edition london burns oaks and washburn limited publishers to the Holy See, 1928. Nehil Abstat Meyers, Censor Deputates Impremator Edmundberg Canida Surmont, Vicarius Generalis, Westmanastri, Day 15th of June, 1915. Standard Bearers of the Faith. A series of the lives of the saints for young and old. Contents. Chapter 1. How St. Monica was brought up by Christian parents in the city of Tacaste. 2. How St. Monica lived in the pagan household of her husband, Patricus. Patricus. Oh, St. Patrick. There we go. Number three. How St. Monica brought up her children. Is it okay? I can go pee pee with your own Okay. Can you go in the other room? Okay. Thank you. Mama! Okay. Uh, all right. Mama. I'm coming. Mama. We'll pick up at number three. Table of Contents, Chapter 3. How St. Monica brought up her children and how the little Augustine fell sick and desired baptism. Chapter 4. How St. Monica, by her gentleness and charity, oh, please, Lord, I pray for gentleness, won Patricius, 
and his mother to Christ. Number five, how Augustine went to Carthage and how Patricius died a Christian death. How St. Monica, sorry, chapter six, how St. Monica lived in the days of her widowhood and how she put all her trust in God. Chapter 7 How St. Monica's heart was well nigh broken by the news that her son had adjured the Christian faith. Huh? Adjured. Uh. Chapter 8 How Augustine planned to go to Rome and how he cruelly deceived his mother. Oh. Chapter 9 How Augustine came to Milan and how his tempest-tossed soul Oh, his soul was all tempest-tossed? Yeah. Anyways, how his tempest-tossed soul found, what did he find? Light and Peace at last. Ah, Roman numeral 10, the cross. Chapter 10, how St. Monica lived at, where? Cassiacum, 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 with Augustine and his friends. Oh, yeah. And how... Augustine was baptized by St. Ambrose. Yeah, I got you on the read list. What's up, St. Ambrose? Roman numeral 11, chapter 11, the final chapter. 1 1. How St. Monica set out for Africa. Oh! With St. Augustine, and how she died. At Austia on the Tiber. Ah, she's still flowing, aren't you? Oh, yeah. Right? Reminds me of the story of when we were on Pocahontas. No, Pennsylvania. Uh huh. In the Susquehanna River. Uh huh. And we were like, oh, the, we, we couldn't get a canoe because we had kids. Quest was with us. And. Quest and Daddy was in the boat, and me and the kids were like, we're jumping in the river, because we had floaties on, and we just floated down the river. It wasn't very deep. It was very shallow, and as I drifted down, I was able to um, just touch my hands across the bottom vegetation and the seaweeds, and the fishes were swimming with us. I could see their bubbles right next to me. And finally, I just took off my life vest, and I was just floating because the water, the level of salt and water balance is like, you just floating. It was so awesome. I could feel the water floating through my surf suit. Uh, yeah, surf suits everywhere I go. It keeps me warm. I don't surf. I don't know how to surf. I will someday. But, yeah, it was awesome. Susquehanna River, the purest, greenest water in all of the United States. It looked so green. I was like, is something wrong with it? They're like, no. It's that greenness that makes the water so clean. I could have drank from it, y'all. I could have. I didn't have to because I didn't have to. I wasn't swimming. I was floating. I'd like, I wasn't, I didn't have to try. It was awesome. 
Okay, moment over. Bye. We will be back with, I don't know, chapter one. Oh, yeah. All right, a quick short note before we get into chapter one. This book is above all things the story of a mother. Yeah, I'm a mama, so I need to read it. But it is also the story of a noble woman. Yeah, well, I'm trying to be. A woman who was truly great for the reason that she never sought to be so. Yeah. Because she understood the sphere in which a woman's work in the world must usually lie. Uh-huh. Uh, okay. And led her life truly along the lines that God laid down for her. Yeah, okay, I'm there, I'm there. Yeah, every day I'm just like, I don't plan no more. Every time I try to make plans like I used to, I'm like, like that little light on the dashboard that says, engine failure. (laughs) Like, hello, stop it. (laughs) Because she suffered bravely. Yeah, we've been through a lot, Lord. We've been through a lot. I have no more, or whatever. Forgot herself for others, and remained faithful to her noble ideals. Yeah, I'm trying to hold on tight, Lord. Trying to hold on tight. She ruled as a queen amongst those with whom her life was cast. Yeah. Play my role. Her influence was great and far-reaching, but she herself was the last to suspect it, the last to desire it. And that was perhaps the secret of its greatness. The type is rare at the present day, but thank God there are Monicas still in the world. Yeah, touched by an angel. Her name was Monica. Isn't that cool? If there were more, the world would be a better place. Yeah, let's pray for them. For all the Monicas of the world, Lord. All right, we'll be back. Chapter one. All right, finally, some peace and quiet. (laughs) They're all asleep. Shh. Chapter one. How St. Monica was brought up by Christian parents in the city of Tagaste. On the sunny northern coast of Africa, in the country which we now call Algeria, oh, we pray for Algeria, stood in the early days of Christianity a city called Tagaste. T-A-G-A-S-T-E. Not far distant. You need some gas? Go to Gaste. <laughs> Not for distant, no, no, not far distant, lay the field of Zarna, with the glory of Hannibal, like Lecter, the movie Silence of the Lambs, where the glory of Hannibal, with a capital H, had perished forever. Bye. But Rome had long since avenged. <laughs> The sufferings of her bitter struggle with Carthage. Carthage is a city, like a car, that, 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 that won't age. 
Carthage, get it? C-A-R-T-H-A-G-E. It was the ambition of Roman Africa, as the new colony had been called by its conquerors. What's it called again? Roman Africa. Interesting. R-A. To be, if possible, more Roman than Rome. Seriously, I'm just roaming around, people. Every town had its baths. Yeah, is it a toilet or a bathroom? I just need to pee, people. Just don't charge me for toilet paper. Thank you. Never going to China again. It's theater. It's theatre. Theater. Theater. Oh, great. It's circus. It's temples. It's aqueducts. Via. Via water. Okay, all right, bye. Flow of water. It's baths. It's aqueducts. It was forbidden even to exiles as a place of refuge to be too much like home, said the authorities. It was about the middle of the fourth century the church was coming forth from her long imprisonment into the light of day. The successor of Constantine, in name a Christian, in name, okay, in name only, sat on the imperial throne. The old struggle with paganism, which had lasted for 400 years, was nearly at an end, but new dangers assailed the Christian world. Men had found that it was easier to twist the truth than to deny it. And heresy and schism were abroad. Is that like a chick? No, not like a blonde. We're abroad, like in a lot of places. Great. In the atrium or outer court of the villa, on the outskirts of Tagaste, an old woman, a younger, a young girl, sat together, looking out into the dark shadows of the evening, for the hot African sun had sank not long since behind the Numidian mountains, and the day had gone out like a lamp. Twilight, the girl asked, and the holy bishop, Cyprian? The old woman said, they sent him into exile, for his father had been a senator and his family was well-known and powerful. At that time, they dared not put him to death, though later he, too, shed his blood for Christ. It was God's will that he should remain for many years to strengthen his flock in the trial. Did he ever see him, Grandmama? No, it was before my time. But my mother knew him well. It was when he was a boy in Carthage and still a pagan that the holy martyrs Perpetua and Felicitas suffered with their companions. It was not till years after he had become a Christian, but it may have been after their death that sowed the first seed in his heart.
tell me, said the girl softly. It was an oft-told tale of which she never tired of hearing. Her grandmama had lived through those dark days of persecution, you see. And it was the delight of Monica's girlhood to hear her tell the stories of those who had borne witness to the faith in their own land of Africa. Perpetua was not much older than you, said the old woman. She was of noble race and born of a Christian mother, though her father was a pagan. She was married and had a little infant of a few months old when she was called before the tribunal of Hilarion, the Roman governor at the time. All were touched by her youth and beauty. Sacrifice to the gods, they said, and you shall go free. She answered, I am a Christian. And nothing more would she say, past her as they might. Her old father hastened to her side with the baby and laid it in her arms. Will you leave your infant motherless, he asked and bring your old father's hairs to sorrow to the grave. Bystanders were crying, Have pity on the child. Have pity on your father. But Perpetua grasped, clasped her baby to her breast, and her eyes filled with tears. They thought she had yielded and brought her to the innocents. They said, just one little grain on the brazier, and you are free for the child's sake and your old father's. But she said, she pushed it from her. I am a Christian, she said. God will keep my child. And she pushed her child away from her. She was condemned with her companions to be thrown to the wild beasts in the amphitheater. And they were taken away and cast into an old dark dungeon. Every day they were tempted with promises of freedom to renounce the truth. Yep. This reminds me of the Bible story of Daniel and the lion. This is exactly what happened. The little babe. This is a true story of the life of St. Monica. The little babe of Felicitas was born in the prison where they lay awaiting death. A Christian woman took the infant to bring it up in the faith. The young mother never saw the face of her child in this world, in this world, one word, 
one little motion of the hand, and they were free, restored again to their happy life of old, and the homes they were so that were so dear. There were many. Alas, in these cruel days, in those cruel days, who had not courage for the fight, they sacrificed and went their way. Not so for these weak women. Once again, they brought. Perpetua, her little child, to try to shake her consistency. The prison is like a palace, she said. While its little dawny head lay on her breast, her father wept and even struck her, in his grief and anger. I am a Christian, she said. And gave him back the babe. They were thrown to the wild beasts, Felicitas and Perpetua, who had been tossed by a wild cow. Though horribly gored, they were still alive. Gladiators, gladiators were summoned to behead them. Felicitas died at the first stroke, but the man's hand trembled, and he struck at Perpetua again and again, wounding her, but not mortally. <laughs> She said. You are more afraid than I," she said gently, and taking the point of the sword, held it to her throat. "Strike now," she said, and so pressed into the presence of all of her God. Monica drew a long breath. So weak and yet so strong," the old woman said. "So it is, my child. So it is. It is those who are strong and true in the little things of life who are strong and true." In the great trials, the little girl said, "It is hard to be always strong and true. Not if God's love comes always first," answered the old woman. Monica was silent. She was thinking of her own young life and how, with all the safeguards of a Christian home about her, 
she had narrowly escaped a great danger. From her babyhood, she had been brought up by her father's old nurse, not overly tender, perhaps, but wisely. For in the city of Tagaste was largely pagan in its habits, <laughs> and the faithful old servant knew well what temptations would surround her nursling in later years. Monica, though full of life and spirit, had common sense and judgment beyond her years. She had also a great love of God, that of all that belonged to his holy service, would spend hours kneeling in the church in a quiet corner. It was there she brought all her childish troubles and her childish hopes. It was to the invisible friend in the sanctuary that she confided all the secrets of her young heart and above all that desire to suffer for him and for his church with which the stories of the martyrs had inspired her. When the time slipped away too fast, she returned home late. She accepted humbly the correction that awaited her for she knew that she had disobeyed, although unintentionally, her nurse's orders. Monica had been willfully disobedient once. And we're almost, okay, I'll t oh, one more page, we're to the end of the chapter. All right, final story before we go. Monica had been willfully disobedient once. And all her life long, she would never forget the lesson her disobedience had taught her. It was a rule of her old nurse that she should take nothing to drink between meals, you see. Even in the hot days of summer, oh my gosh, it is hot right now. In that sultry climate, it's if she had not encouraged to bear so slightly a mortification as that, <laughs> the old woman would argue, all right, it would go ill with her in the greater trials of life. Monica had become used to the habit, but when she was old enough to begin to learn the duties of housekeeping, her mother had desired that she should go every day to the cellar to draw the wine for the midday meal. A mid-servant, a maid-servant, went with her to carry the flagon, and the child, feeling delightfully important and filled and refilled the little cup which was used to draw the wine from the cast and emptied it carefully into the wine jar. When all was finished, a few drops remaining in the cup, a spirit of mischief took sudden possession of Monica, and she drained it off, making a wry face as she did so at the strange taste. 
The maidservant laughed and continued to laugh when the performance was repeated the next day and the day after. The strange taste became gradually less strange and less unpleasant to the young girl. Daily, a few drops were added until at last, scarcely thinking what she did, she would drink nearly the fill of the little cup while the servant laughed as of old. Monica was quick and intelligent and was learning her household duties well, finding one day that a piece of work which fell to the lot of the maid who went with her to the wine cellar was very badly done. She reproved her severely. The woman turned on her young mistress angrily. She retorted, it is not for a wine-bibber like you to find fault with me. Monica well, stood horrified. The woman's insolent word had torn the veil from her eyes. Whither was she drifting? Into what depths might that one act of disobedience so lightly committed have led her had not God, in his mercy, intervened? She never touched the wine for the rest of her life, unless largely diluted with water. God had taught her that, He who despises small things shall fall by little and little. And Monica had learnt her lesson. She had learnt to distrust herself. And self-distrust makes one marvelously gentle to others. She had learnt, too, and also to put her trust in God. And trust in God makes one marvelously strong, you see. She had been taught to love the poor and the suffering and to serve them at her own expense and inconvenience. And the service of others makes one unselfish. God had put, God had worked, sorry, God had work for Monica to do in his world, as he has for us all, if we will only do it. And he had given her what was needful for her task. That night, on the way to her chamber, as the young girl passed the place where she had sat with her grandmother earlier in the day, she paused a moment and looked out between the tall pillars into the starlight where the palm trees stood like dark shadows against the deep, deep blue of the sky. She clasped her hands and her lips moved in prayer. Oh, God, she murmured, 
to suffer for thee and for thy faith. God heard the whispered prayer and answered it later. There is a living martyrdom as painful and as bitter as death. And Monica was called to taste it. End of chapter 2 Welcome back to the life of St. Monica, Chapter 3. How St. Monica brought up her children and how the little Augustine fell sick and desired baptism. As soon as the little Augustine was born, his mother had taken him to Christian church that the sign of the cross might be made on his forehead and that he might be entered amongst the catacombs, catechumens. It was a custom of the time, never approved of by the church, to, to put off baptism until the catechumen had shown himself able to withstand the temptation of the half-pagan society in the midst of which he had to live. Through this mistaken idea of reverence for the sacrament, the young soldier of Christ, lest he should tarnish his weapons in the fight, was sent unarmed into a conflict which he needed all the strength which the sacraments alone can give. The Outlook for Monica Um, for my prayer intentions for anybody who lives with a pagan husband in a pagan household. <clears throat> the outlook for Monica with her pagan husband and her pagan household was darker than for most Christian mothers. Her heart grew heavy within her as she held her young son in her arms and thought of the future. For the present indeed, he was hers, but later, when she could no longer keep him at her side and surround him with his mother's love and protection, what dangers would beset him? The influence of an unbelieving father? During the years when the boyish ideas of life would be forming, a household that knew not Christ? How could he pass untouched through the dangers that would assail his young soul? With prayers and tears, Monica bent over the unconscious little head that lay so peacefully upon her breast, commending her babe to the Heavenly Father to whom all things are possible. Augustine drank in the love of Christ with his mother's milk, he tells us. As soon as he could speak, she taught him to lisp a prayer. As soon as 
as soon as he could understand. She taught him in tongue suited to his childish sense. The great truths of the Christian faith. He would listen eagerly, and standing at his mother's knee, or nestling in her arms, in her arms, follow the sweet voice that would that could make the highest things so simple to his childish understanding. It was the seed time that was later to bear such glorious fruit, though the long days of winter lay between. The thought the boy was thoughtful and intelligent. He loved all that was great and good and noble. The loathing of what was mean and base and unlovely breathed into him by his mother in those days of early childhood haunted him even during his most even during his worst moments in later life. The cry that burst from his soul at manhood, when he had drunk deeply of the cup of earthly joys and found it bitter and unsatisfying, had its origin in those early teachings. Thou hast made us for thyself, O God, and our hearts can find no rest until they rest in thee. So, one day, when the child was about seven years old, ah, seven, he was suddenly seized with sickness. He was in great pain, and so soon became so ill that his life was in danger. His parents were in anguish, but Augustine's one thought was for his soul. He begged and prayed that he might receive baptism. Monica added her entreaties to his patricious yielded. All was prepared when the child suddenly got better. Then someone intervened, probably his father, for Augustine tells us that the baptism was put off again, indefinitely. But it was time to think of the boy's education and it was proposed to send him to school in Tagaste. It was a pagan school to which the child must go, pagan authors that he must study, and worst than all, pagan conversation that he must hear, and pagan placemate, playmates with whom he must associate. Patricius was proud of the beauty and intelligence of his little son. He hoped great things for the future, but Augustine's early school days were far from brilliant. Eager as the boy was to learn what interested him, he had an insurmountable dislike to anything that caused him trouble. It bored him to learn to read and write, and the 
uninspiring truth that two and two make four was a weariness of the flesh to him. Though the stories of Virgil enchanted him, Homer he never thoroughly enjoyed nor quite forgave. For had he not for his sake, for had he not for his sake been forced to wade through the chilly waters of the Greek grammar? Unfortunately for Augustine, such dismal truths as two and two makes four had to be mastered before high, higher flights can be attempted. The Auguste schoolmasters had but one way to sharpen their scholars' zeal for learning, the liberal use of the rod. Now Augustine disliked beatings as much as he disliked all other unpleasant things, but he also disliked work. The only way of evading both disagreeables was to follow the example of the greater number of his fellow scholars, to play when he should have been working, and to tell clever lies to his schoolmasters and his parents in order to escape punishment. Such tricks, however, are bound to be found out sooner or later. And Monica, I pray for Monica and Willis, realizing that much could be got out of her son by love, but little by fear, took him for a course of instruction to the Christian priests that he might learn to overcome himself for the love of God. As a result, Augustine took more earnestly to his prayers, asking above all, however, that he might not be beaten at school. His mother, finding him one day praying in a quiet corner to this intent, suggested that if he had learnt his lessons for the day, he need have no fear. But if he had not, punishment was to be expected. Patricius, who was passing and overheard the conversation, laughed at his son's fears and agreed with his wife. Augustine thought them both exceedingly heartless. As the boy grew older, however, his wonderful gifts began to show themselves, and as his masters, seeing of what he was really capable, Punish him yet more severely when he was idle. Augustine, too, began to take pride in his own success and to wish to be first among his young companions. The latter cheated as a matter of course, but in work and at play. Bad habits are catching and Augustine would sometimes cheat, too. When found out, he would fly into a passion, although no one was so severe on the dishonesty of others as he. And yet, though he would often yield to the temptations that were the hardest for his pleasure-loving nature to resist, there was much that was good in the boy. He had a faithful and loving heart. 
an attraction for all that was great and noble. He was, in fact, his mother's son, as well as his father's. The tares and the wheat are sprouting side by side. But Augustine was rapidly growing out of childhood. Patricius, prouder than ever of his clever son, resolved to spare no pains to give him the best education that his means could procure. The son, the boy, had a great gift of eloquence, says his masters, and much judgment. He would be certain to succeed brilliantly at the bar. That is the bar exam. It was decided to send him to Madara, a town about twenty miles distance, a great deal longer, a, I'm sorry, a great deal larger than Tuscate, Tagaste, and well known for its culture and its schools. It was one of the most pagan of cities of Africa. But this was an objection that had no weight with Patricius, although it meant much on Monica. The only comfort for her in the thought of her first separation was that there at least her son would not be far from home. Not far away in truth as distance goes, but how far away in spirit. Madara was a large and handsome city with a circus and theatre and a fine forum or marketplace set round with statues of the gods. It was proud of its reputation for learning, but had little else to be proud of. Its professors were men who were more ashamed of being detected in a fault of style than in the grossest crimes, who were ashamed indeed of nothing else. The pagan gods were held up to their scholars as models for admiration and imitation. It was a poor ideal at the best. The gods were represented by the great pagan poets and authors as no better. If more powerful than ordinary mortals, they were subject to all the meannesses and all the baseness of the least noble of their worshippers. That their adventures, neither moral or nor elevating, were told in the most exquisite language by the greatest authors of antiquity, rather than added to the danger, than decreased it. Yes, rather added to the danger than decreased it. True, the noblest of the classical writers broke away continually from the bondage which held them, to stretch out groping hands toward the eternal truth and beauty into which real genius must always have some insight, but not all were noble. The students of Madora were worthy of their masters, 
Nothing was too shameful to be talked about, if only it were talked about in well-turned phrases. The plays acted in the theatre were what might be expected in Roman society of the 4th century, that society from which St. Anthony and St. Jerome had been forced to flee in the desert, to the desert, in order to save their souls. Oh. Augustine was golden, won golden opinions from his masters for his quickness and intelligence. They thought of nothing else but of cultivating the minds of their scholars. Heart and soul were left untouched and touched in such a way that evil sprang to life and good was stifled. He was a genius, they cried, a budding rhetorician, no, rhetorician, rhetoric, of, you know, Aristotle and the like, you know, Plato and such, a budding rhetorician, a poet rhetoric. Although masters and scholars alike applauded him, Augustine, while he drank their praises greedily, was restless and unhappy. He had gone down before the subtle temptations of Medora, like corn before the skeeth. First evil thoughts, but carelessly resisted, than evil deeds. He had lost his childish innocence, and with it his childish happiness. For he knew too much, and was too noble of nature to be content with what was ignoble. The seeds of his mother's teachings were yet alive in, within him. And Monica? Oh, only 20 miles away at Tascate. Sorry, Tagaste. She was praying for her son. Beseeching the Heavenly Father to keep him from evil, to watch over him now that she was no longer at his side, hoping and trusting that all was well with her boy. End of chapter 3